Making disciples is God-sized work. Only God can cause a person to know him personally and make him known passionately. It is God who uses the local church to make disciples. In fact, God doesn't make disciples apart from the local church. Last Sunday, we began a new seven-part sermon series whereby we are describing seven characteristics of God-built disciples. Last week, we discovered that a disciple is one who is dependent upon the word. Today, we will learn that a disciple is one who is persistent in prayer. All seven of these characteristics come from one of the Psalms. And today, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to Psalm 3. This is the text of the choir song that was just sung moments ago. I want to read it in your hearing. Psalm 3. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Please hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The 150 Psalms are divided into five books. We read in the Talmud that as David gave five books to Israel in the Pentateuch, or as Moses gave five books uh, to Israel in the Pentateuch, so David gave uh, five books to Israel in the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are individual. What I mean by that is that they stand alone on their own. There are some collection of the Psalms. Most notably, there are the Psalms of Asaph, uh, Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. There's also the Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Those are the 15 songs that would have been sung as people made their way up to the city of Jerusalem as they ascended the holy mountain of God. But for the most part, most psalms are individual. They're written by a host of authors. David, most notably, gets a lot of the credit. But the reality is he penned 73 out of the 150 psalms, so about half of them. Asaph, Israel's musician, wrote about 12. Moses penned one psalm, it's Psalm 90. 35 of the psalms are anonymous, so we don't know who wrote them at all. All 150 psalms could be categorized in one of four categories. Every psalm does at least one of these things. Sometimes it's a declarative psalm where it simply declares the sovereign goodness of God. Others are descriptive psalms. They describe how God intervened uh, at a time and place in history. Still others are didactic psalms that teach us how we ought to live the wise life. The truth of the matter is, last week's psalm, Psalm 1, was a didactic psalm teaching us how to live God's life for us. 
But then you come to the fourth category. And the fourth category is that of lament. A lament is a cry. It's a, a plead of grief. It's a request for help. It's a plea that's very raw, very honest in its feelings. This third psalm is a lament. When you and I come to Psalm 3, Psalm 3 is the first in many ways. For starters, it's the first psalm that uses the word psalm in its title. The word psalm, it communicates the idea of uh, being strung on an instrument, something that is to be sung. Not only is this the first time that a psalm is spoken in the book of Psalms, this is also the first prayer of the psalms. This is the first praying psalm that is dedicated or uh, authored by the man named David. This is the first psalm that has a title to it. For it says that this psalm is a psalm of David written as he was fleeing for his life from his son Absalom. Not only is it a title, but it's the first historical title. Of all the 150 psalms, there are 14 that have historical titles. Kind of sets the backdrop and the background of the psalm. Ironically, all 14 of those historical titles are given to David. So David communicated often on the run. As David was living life, he was pinning psalms. He was writing prayers unto the Lord. And many of them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, find itself here in the book of 150 psalms. This particular psalm is given to us, and the backdrop of the historical title is that this psalm was written as David was fleeing his son Absalom. Now the story of that in scripture is given in 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 18. I'm not going to read all those chapters to you, can I get a hearty amen? We don't have that much time. But let me just summarize the story in this way. The story of David is a story of epic success until that night. Prior to that night, David had ruled and reigned for 20 years as the king of Israel. And he had never tasted defeat on the battlefield. For the first two decades, uh, David ruled in such a way that the geography of Israel expanded to cover some 60,000 square miles. Whatever he touched turned to gold. The economy was through the roof for the first 20 years of David's rule and reign. But then that night happened. In the spring of the year when most kings go to war, David stayed back in Jerusalem. He took a walk on his palatial rooftop from that vantage point. He could see the majority of the city. But on this night, he wasn't looking at the entire city. He was looking in one specific direction. He saw a woman taking a bath. I've never known the Bible to exaggerate, but the scripture says that the woman was very beautiful. I've got to take that to mean that she was a knockout. And oh, how I wish that David would have looked away, turned away, and walked away. But he threw caution to the wind. He locked his eyes upon this woman, set his gaze upon her, and he lusted after her. He called for her. And on that night, David abused his power as the king of Israel. And on that night, David had a one-night stand with Bathsheba. The events of that night tainted the rest of David's life. It's remarkable, isn't it? Sometimes one singular event can be so overwhelming that it consumes the definition of the rest of our life. 
you've heard me say before, but it bears repeating. All of us are one step away from stupid. Stupid is pretty close to us. We're just one step away from it. All of us are one step away from stupid. Doing something that is so dumb, that has such far-reaching consequences, that it can begin to dictate and dominate the rest of our life. Such is the case for David on that night. We are told that after that night happened, Bathsheba sent word that she was pregnant. David tried to cover up his mess up. He went so far as, as writing a letter so that Bathsheba's husband Uriah would be put in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. And when the enemy were to attack, the Israelites would withdraw. So by his own hand, he was covered with the blood of Uriah because he was an accomplice to his murder. It wasn't long that Nathan the prophet came to see David. And Nathan said, you are the man. You have done what God has despised. You, you took another man's wife as your own, then you tried to cover it up by having him killed, executed, murdered. And so God is, God is not pleased with you. The thing David had done greatly displeased the Lord. David, in humility, confessed his sin. And God is gracious because God's grace covers over all of our sin. But it does not remove consequences. Let me say that again. God's grace covers over all of our sin. But God's grace does not promise to remove consequences. The child that was born to David and Bathsheba only lived seven days. After that child was a week old, that child died. Nathan said to King David that what you did in secret, others will do in public. Your family will be racketed with deception and incest and, and, and all kinds of things. And everything that Nathan foretold came true. We are told in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that two years after the escapade with Bathsheba and David, David's daughter Tamar was raped by Tamar's brother, a son of David, Amnon. And David didn't do anything about it. He knew what had happened, but he didn't do anything about it. We are told that three years after that terrible incident, that another son of David, Absalom, Tamar's brother, took matters into his own hands, and he murdered his brother Amnon because of what Amnon had done to their sister Tamar. And because of that murder, Absalom had to flee the city of Jerusalem. He was gone for three years. After three years, David finally sent word to his son Absalom, inviting him to come back to the city of Jerusalem. When he came back, Scripture tells us, that Absalom did not see the king's face for two years. For two years, 
David never extended an invitation to Absalom to come to dinner. He never said, hey, let's go get some coffee. Hey, let's go and talk. He never shot him an email or tweeted him a tweet. He never did anything like that. He never reached out to his son. For two years, Absalom was in the city of David. He was in the city of Jerusalem. But David never reached out to him. Absalom began to develop some daddy issues. And I don't quite blame him, actually, because Absalom thought he had done the right thing. I mean, his father didn't do anything to Amnon, and he should have done something to Amnon because of what Amnon did to Tamar. And so Absalom took matters into his own hands because his old man wouldn't do anything about it. And then he got excommunicated and exiled out of the city, came back into the city, and was neglected and given the cold shoulder for the last two years. So the scripture says... That what Absalom began to do was he began to intercept people as they went to the palace seeking justice from the king. It was customary in those days that if you had a dispute, needed something settled, you could take it to the king, gain an audience with the king. He would hear your case and then give wise counsel. And Absalom began to intercept the people of Israel before getting to the king. And he was giving them some good advice. Scripture says that for those four years that Absalom did that, he began to steal the hearts of the men of Israel. So that the people of Israel, they were beginning to love Absalom more than their king, David. Now it didn't hurt matters that Absalom was a gorgeous man. The Bible says of him, he had no blemish he was handsome he was well built he's the kind of guy I've always hated (laughs) Absalom was well built handsome had no blemish in his body his hair the beautiful locks of hair that when it was cut it weighed five pounds I mean Absalom was a man's man and he was a gorgeous man. He was a man that every guy wanted to be like. He was a man that every woman wanted to be with. I mean, Absalom was somebody who had stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. He did this for four years. Now, David must have known that this was going on. After all, his calendar got freed up. Usually, he would Have the people of Israel come, he would settle their matters, but they had not been coming to him. What's going on? It did not take much for David to figure out that Absalom was stealing the people from him. Absalom moves to the neighboring town of Hebron, and there he appoints himself as king. For the next couple of years, he amasses an army, and then Absalom goes and attacks the palace. He goes to the city of Jerusalem. His purpose is to steal the throne from his old man David. And if something happens to David, well, that's just part of warfare. And so he attacks the palace. And David somehow escapes. He leaves behind ten concubines. Concubines were mistresses. David left them behind to take care of the palace. As he is leaving the city, the priest gets wind of this, and he brings the ark of God. David turns and stops him and says, Do not bring the ark of God outside of the city of Jerusalem, for if I have found favor with God, God will bring me back 
to the ark of God. David left. He went down the Kindred Valley, up the Mount of Olives, into the desert. And he ran from cave to cave. He ran from days to weeks to months. He ran away from Absalom. Initially, Absalom, uh, he slept with his father's concubines in broad daylight, fulfilling what Nathan had foretold. David, what you did in secret, those in your family will do in broad daylight. And Absalom was so brash and so arrogant that he would do that on the rooftop so that anybody could see. He not only slept with the concubines, but he stole the throne that belonged to his father David, that had been given to David by divine decree. And then Absalom chased after his father with the express purpose of killing him. He chased him. In the middle of this chase, in the midst of this running and fleeing, David pins this song. Now let me quickly tell you how that part of the story ends. David goes into the desert of Ephraim. Absalom and his men chase after him. Absalom is riding on a mule. And the mule runs towards some low limbs. And Absalom gets caught in the limbs. And the beast of burden, the animal, just kept running. So that Absalom fought and fought, but ultimately he hung there in the limbs to die. We are told that uh, one of the beloved generals of David, a man by the name of Joab, stumbled upon Absalom. He drew his spear and he thrust it into the son of the king just to make sure he was dead. When news of this got to David... Scripture says that David wept bitterly. David cried out. You could hear him for miles. Absalom, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. If I had died instead of you. Oh, my son, Absalom. There's not a father in the crowd that cannot relate to David. There's not a parent in the crowd that can't understand that at that moment you would want to take your child's place in death. Now David would tell you, I made some mistakes with Absalom. I was not a perfect daddy. There is no perfect daddy. But even some of the bad excuses of a dad in that moment would be just like David and say, oh God, let me die in the place of my son. My son, Absalom. I've always been told that a child is like seeing a parent's heart walk outside their body. And if you're a parent, you know that to be true, especially mamas. Mamas understand, and fathers do too, that as they lay their eyes on their children, those children, that's your heart walking outside your body. And yes, there are times as parents you make mistakes with them. And yes, there are times that your children don't treat you well. But in that moment, if you were like David, you would say the very same thing. Oh, Absalom, my son. If only I had died instead of you. 
the story that has such an epic beginning fizzles and fades all because of that night. In the midst of all the running, David writes this psalm, Psalm 3. It's a psalm of three stanzas. Stanza 1 is verse 1 and 2. Stanza 2 is verse 3 and 4. Stanza 3, verses 5 to 8. At the end of each stanza, you find the word Selah. Selah is a musical term. It can either mean to lift up, as in lifting up hands or lifting up trumpets, or it can mean to be brought down to silence. But regardless, it marks the conclusion of a stanza. And so in this psalm, David begins by describing his conflict, verses 1 and 2. And then he immediately goes into great confidence, verses 3 and 4. And then he, uh, then he describes uh, just his celebration in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. David starts by describing the conflict. Keep in mind, this is a prayer. It's a prayer that he voices unto the Lord. It's a lament, so he is grieving as he is praying. And he's describing his conflict. And because he's in warfare, there are no time for pleasantries. He just gets right to it. And he says, oh Lord, how many are my foes? This is not a question, it's a statement. He's not asking God, God, how many are my foes? He's not asking a question, he's making a statement. Lord, do you see how many are my foes? Do you see all these people that are coming against me? Later in the psalm, he will say he's surrounded by tens of thousands of his enemy. Now, one thing to always understand is when you are interpreting a psalm, because it is poetry, because it is dripping with symbolism, oftentimes, especially in a lament, feelings are portrayed as facts. It may not be factually accurate that David is surrounded by tens of thousands of his enemies, but that sure is what it feels like. When you pray, for a disciple is persistent in prayer, when you pray, there are times when you pray, when you just voice unto the Lord, this is how I feel. Lord, I feel as if I'm surrounded by my enemy. Tens and thousands of my enemy soldiers have surrounded me, and they all have one objective, to kill me. You may say, now, David, that's not actually factually true, is it? That's how he feels. In a similar way, if you went to Psalm 73, this is the psalm of Asaph, Israel's musician. And Asaph says that, the wicked are winning, and one of the ways you know the wicked are winning is because the wicked don't get sick. Now, truth be told, do you know wicked people that get sick? Of course you do. Wicked people get cancer. Righteous people get cancer. It rains on the just and the unjust. But in that moment of Asaph writing Psalm 73, he says it appears as if the wicked are winning. It appears as if the wicked, they don't even get sick. It may not be factually true, but it sure is how he feels. And sometimes when you pray, you portray your feelings as facts, don't you? That's what David does. 
He's describing this conflict. Lord, how many are my foes? Tens of thousands are surrounding me. And I've heard what they're saying about me. They are saying he will get no help from God. God, is that true? Is it true that I'm not going to get any help from you? What they're saying is that you, oh God, you're on their side. And I won't get any help from you. He's describing his conflict. He's discouraged. He's distraught. He's raw. He is just transparent. And he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I know what they're saying. Do you know what they're saying? They're saying this man will find no help from God. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said the most bitter feeling in the world is the fear that God will not help you. If you actually believe that God will not help you, there's nothing more bitter than that fear of that reality. David is describing this conflict. He is in war. And as he is battling, he is praying unto the Lord because disciples are persistent in prayer. And as he is praying, he's saying, God, look around. How many are my foes? They're all coming at me. And they're saying, there's no help for him in God. Lord, is that true? Do you feel the pain of David? Do you feel the distress of David? Do you know what it's like to be betrayed by those closest to you? Do you know what it's like to feel abandoned by family and by God? This conflict is severe. It is enormous. Now, you may not know what it feels like to have your son chasing you with a javelin in his hand. But there may be somebody listening to my voice and you know what it feels like to be betrayed by your children. Betrayed by your grandchildren. For your child to look at you and say, I hate you. Everything you stand for, I reject. Maybe you know what it feels like to have a child reject your gospel. Maybe you know the pain of loving a child and yet still having that child live life and make choices as if your God doesn't exist. Maybe you know what it feels like. To be betrayed by your children. Maybe you know what it feels like to be betrayed by your grandchildren. Maybe the warfare that you face, it's not physical warfare. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that ours is not a battle against flesh and blood, but ours is more spiritual in nature. And sometimes the devil wages war in the midst of families. Can I get an amen? And there are parents that are fighting against children and children that are fighting against their parents and they're acting as if they're David and Absalom. And maybe there's somebody here and you know the pain of betrayal. You know the pain of your child looking at you saying, I hate you, I hate your God, I hate your gospel, I'm going to choose life and live life contrary to everything you've taught me and everything that you've told me. You feel the bitterness of that. Maybe your warfare is not in family. Maybe your warfare 
is at work. And at work, they're cutthroat office politics. And you work for a company that seems to be so contrary to your Christian convictions. That's stuffing down your throat a leftist agenda that is draped in wokeism. And you sit there and think to yourself, this company almost is, is, is asking me to bow the knee to something that's not godly. And you wrestle with that. And you feel the weapons of the office. What's the weapons of the office? Rumors and lies and slander. And slander can slice and dice you just as much as a spear or a javelin. And so maybe, maybe your warfare is not in your family, but maybe the warfare is in the workplace. In the culture in which you live. And you know what it is. For as David describes his conflict to God, you could describe your conflict unto the Lord. Talk about your family, speak of the culture of the marketplace. Maybe, maybe your battles are with neighbors, or maybe your battles are with church members. People who say that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a sibling in the Lord that's not a member of this faith family but goes to some other church. And, and you feel the pain of the conflict. This is David. David in verses 1 and 2, he's just describing his conflict to God. He is praying a lament. He is expressing his grief. It is raw. It is transparent. He feels betrayed. He literally is running for his life. He knows that his son is chasing him in the hopes to kill him. And he's heard what they have said. They have said that in David, there's no hope for him in God. Then you get to verses 3 and 4 the second stanza and it seems that he goes from conflict to confidence he says you are my shield you're the lifter of my head you hear me from your holy hill you say wait a minute David how do you go from verse 1 and 2 to verse 3 I mean, you're turning on a dime here. I mean, everything's changing. How in the world can you go from verses 1 and 2 where you are saying how many are my foes and they're out to get me and God's on their side and God, you even know what's happening to then verse 3 to say, but God, you are my shield. You're the lifter of my head. You're the one who hears me from your holy hill. You say, David, how, how do you go there? How do you go from verse 2 to verse 3? How do you go from conflict to confidence in God. And here's the answer. David stopped looking at his problems and he started looking at the promise keeper. David stopped looking at the crisis and he started looking at the Christ. David stopped looking at his mess and he started looking at his Messiah. David stopped looking at his surroundings and he started looking towards his Savior. He said, Lord, you are my shield. You are my protection. You are the one who will, who will protect me against my enemy. You are the lifter of my head. My head should not be downcast. My head should look up to you. And when I do look up to you, I realize that you hear me from your holy hill. When we change our visual perspective, it changes everything. When we stop looking solely at the circumstance, at the crisis, at the problem, at the predicament, at the prognosis, and we start looking unto the Lord, everything changes. Our conflict goes to confidence because we have confidence in God. We're not confident in ourselves. We're confident in the Lord. We're completely and utterly confident in him 
because he's able to do immeasurably more we could ever ask, think, or imagine. So that there is no scenario, there is no situation, there is no setback that's beyond his sovereignty. There is no relationship that's too far gone. There is no life that's too messed up. There is no sin that's too gross for the grace of our Lord. We've got to realize that when we come to a conflict, when we come to a moment of betrayal and disgust and frustration, when we come to that moment, we can look up unto the Lord and we, like David, will discover that the Lord is our shield, he is the lifter of our head, and he is the one who hears us from his holy hill. We've got to remember to whom we pray. We pray out of devotion, not merely out of discipline. There is a difference. We pray out of devotion to God Almighty. It's not that we pray just out of repetition. It's not that we pray just out of discipline. It's not that we pray just out of habit. Friends, we are not Muslims who pray five times a day in the hopes that Allah will be pleased with them and listen to them and be favorably disposed towards them. We are not Muslim. We are not Jews who somehow wail against a wall in the hopes that Yahweh will somehow hear them and respond. No, we are Christians. We pray to God through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that when we pray, God hears our prayers from his holy hill. There is nothing, there is no place where God is deaf towards us. We cannot get found, we cannot find ourselves in a situation that is beyond the earshot of God Almighty. God hears us from his holy hill. Why? Because we pray to God through Christ. We always have to remember to whom we pray. You remember the 12 spies? As they were looking into the promised land, seeing if God's promise could be taken as fact, they saw the same circumstances, the same giants, the same land, the same trouble, And 10 out of 12 said, we can't take it, no way. And two of the 12 said, yes, we can. Why did those two say, yes, we can take it? Because they weren't looking at the circumstance, they were looking at the Christ. They weren't looking at the giants, they were looking at the God of the giants. And God had already said, this is your land, and they took God at his word. David gets the point where he goes from conflict to confidence because his perspective changed. He said, Lord, um, you're my shield. You're the lifter of my head. You're the one who answers me from your holy hill. You do realize you can never find yourself in a spot where God won't listen. If you're a disciple, if you're one who knows Christ and you make him known, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're persistent in prayer, if you're a disciple of the Lord, you cannot get in a situation or scenario where God will be deaf towards you. God always hears your prayers. You say, but pastor, I I don't see God moving. God always hears your prayers. But, but pastor, I, I, don't, I don't see any answer, any solution. God always hears your prayers. And if he hears your prayers, he will act according to his will in accordance with your situation. You can never be in a scenario where God is deaf towards his disciple. 
because he listens to us from his holy hill. David goes from conflict to confidence, and then ultimately he just celebrates. Verses 5 to 8, the remainder of the psalm, is just a, a portion of celebration. He says, I lie down, I sleep, and I awake because God sustains me. Keep in mind, he's running for his life. He's running from Absalom. Absalom is coming to kill him. And David says, that's okay, I'll lie down. And I won't lose a wink of sleep, I'll sleep. And then I will wake up all because God sustains me. His trust is in God Almighty. So he says, God, you've got my back. And because you've got my back, I'm not going to lose any sleep. Some of us, we lose sleep over a host of things, don't we? We can't get to sleep. We lose sleep because we're, we're, we're torn up on the inside because of this health concern, because of this problem, because of this cancer, because of this unemployment, because of this prodigal situation, because of this broken relationship, because of these marital issues. We are broken up and turned upside down, inside out because of a host of things. And David just reminds us of Psalm 3, hey, God's got your back. You can lie down, you can sleep, and you'll awake because he being God sustains you. The next verse says you have nothing to fear. I've been told maybe what you've been taught, there are 365 do not fears in the Bible. I don't know if that's accurate, but I know why people say it. There's a do not fear for every day of your year. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're walking through, God says to his disciple, do not fear. Why don't you fear? God says, I got your back. So don't lose sleep over this, whatever this may be. Don't lose sleep over it. Lie down. Sleep. I'll wake you. Because God says, I will sustain you. Oh, David, he celebrates because of his confidence in God in the midst of his conflict that he's experiencing. And then I like it when he just simply says, um, arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. He's quoting Moses from Numbers chapter 10 where Moses said, Arise, O Lord. And then he says, I, I really wish that you would just strike and crack the jaw and break the teeth of my enemy. Now some people read those verses and they think, no, David shouldn't be saying that. I mean, David, he's a godly man. He loves the Lord and uh, godly people shouldn't say of God, please just punch my enemy in the mouth and break their jaw and, and, and smack their teeth and, and, and really throw them an elbow or two for me. But I say to you, have you ever prayed? Have you ever prayed? I mean, seriously, there are some times when you pray and you're just honest, you're transparent, you're lamenting before the Lord, and you're saying, God, I want you to get me out of this thing. And as you're getting me out of this thing, and you've got my back, just throw an elbow or two. Just throw a couple of elbows and just catch them right there in the jaw and break their teeth along the way. And that'd be fine with me. Because God, I need you to show yourself strong and mighty. I find it interesting that that beautiful song that the choir sang, which the text comes from Psalm 3, you did not hear anything about breaking teeth in that song. In that song, the author of that song did not say anything about breaking teeth, but David does. 
David says, listen, God, I am so confident in you. I can celebrate in you. I just, just throw some elbows. Just throw a couple of punches. Just break some jaws and crack some teeth. Because God, in you is deliverance. In you is deliverance. Let your favor rest upon your people. Your people, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, let disciples know that the God that they pray to is the God of deliverance. Friend, God's got your back. God knows your situation. God is well aware of your scenario. He knows the problem. He knows the situation. He knows the predicament. He knows the setback. He knows what keeps you up at night. God's got you because God is a God of deliverance. Salvation is always in his hands. Deliverance is always in his hands. It is God who delivered Noah and his family from the worldwide flood. It is God who delivered Joseph from the pit, placed him in the palace. It is God who delivered the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. It is God who rescued and uh, delivered Jonah from the smelly belly of the fish. It is God who delivered Daniel from his lion's den. It is God who delivered the three Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He delivered them. He danced with them even in the fiery furnace. It is God who delivered Peter from the water. It is God who delivered Lazarus from death. It is God who delivered the lunatic named Legion from his demons. And I don't know about you, but God has delivered me today. And God just might have delivered you today. He's delivered you from some stuff. He's delivered you from some sin. He's delivered you from some situations. He's delivered you from some bad habits. He's delivered you from some hang-ups. He's delivered you from some brokenness. He's put your life back together again. Why? Because God is the God who delivers his people. If you rely on organizations, you'll only get what an organization can do. If you rely on politicians, you'll only get what politicians can do. If you rely on your education, you'll only get what your education can do. If you rely on your parents, you'll only get what your parents can do. If you rely on yourself, you'll only get what yourself can do. But if you rely on prayer, you'll get what God can do. You remember the story when God delivered Peter from jail. The church is praying and they're asking God to deliver their apostle Peter from jail. And his story is told in Acts chapter 12. And Peter comes and he knocks on the door. This past week I heard this statement that it was it was the angel that fetched Peter but it was prayer that fetched the angel sometimes ain't nothing gonna happen until we pray and when we pray God moves heaven and earth he dispatches his angels he does some stuff only God can do because when you rely on prayer it is only what God can do because God is the one who delivers us so we've got to pray like Jesus we simply have to pray like Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus prayed in the garden? He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that not once or twice, but three times. And Jesus got his answer. And I think the answer was where the Father said, I will not deliver you from it, but I will deliver you through it. Jesus got up and he walked out of the garden and he faced Golgotha 
on Friday. I came to realize this past week that the prayer, the one doing the praying, he died. But his prayer did not. Jesus died, but his request did not. Jesus prayed unto the Lord, and God heard the prayer of God from his holy hill. And Jesus died on the cross on Friday. His dead body was taken off the cross, placed to a borrowed grave. He stayed there all day Friday, uh, for the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, even early into Sunday morning. But then early on Sunday morning, do you know what God said to God? God said to my God, God said to my Lord, God said to Jesus what David said here in Psalm 3, arise, O Lord. And when God said to my God, when God said to my Jesus, arise, O Lord, guess what happened? Jesus got up. Jesus got up from the grave. He burst forth from the tomb, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, all because the prayer never died. The prayer might, uh, the, the, the one doing the praying might have died, but the prayer never died. And God heard the prayer of his son. And on the third day, God said to Jesus, arise. Oh Lord, and Jesus got up. If God will do that for Jesus, God will do that for you. God will do that for me. Friend, I'm just trying to tell you that God is our deliverer. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart him. Nothing can derail the will of our God. So David goes from conflict to confidence to celebration. And at the end, he just says, Lord, may your favor rest on your people. And so I just got to wrap up just by saying this. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. The disciple that is built by God is persistent in prayer. It's prayer that at times is a lament. It's honest. It's transparent. It's raw. It's rugged. But it's prayer that's dependent upon Christ. So, Lord, I need you. Huh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. I wonder this morning, anybody here in need? Anybody here in need? Do you need help? Do you need healing? Do you need a relationship restored? Do you need a marriage put back together? Do you need a prodigal to come home? Do you need a door of employment to open? Do you need for God to do what only God can do? A God-made disciple is persistent in prayer. So this morning, church, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we ask for your help in this moment. We may not even know what to pray, but we ask for your help. Lord, uh, your altar's open. May it be full of your disciples as we are persistent in prayer and as we come and lay all our concerns at your feet. Lord, there may be somebody here who needs to come and pray to receive Christ. 
take a minister by the hand. There may be somebody who needs to join this church. Maybe somebody that you're calling into full-time ministry, and we need to make that known publicly. Oh, Father, help us to pray. Help us, for we need you. We ask this in Jesus' name.